You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is a world famous comedy theater and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance and the same practices that have made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is getting to yes and. Well, this was a lovely conversation. I shouldn't be surprised, but I didn't know Neil Malarkey. Um, Neil is a highly accomplished, he's highly accomplished in the field of management training, having run many workshops and hosted conferences for private and public organizations. Um, he uses improvisation. Uh, he's got an incredible career with the Comedy Store Players in London. He was partners in a comedy duo with Mike Myers. Uh, and he's got a terrific new book. It's called In the Moment, Build Your Confidence, Communication, and Creativity at Work. You're going to love this pod. Unsaid. Days can't be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Neil Malarkey, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So there was a line in the first chapter of your new book that actually surprised me. Uh, you write, quote, I had never seen an improv show until I was in one, end quote. So I have my weird story of entering improv without knowing what it was. Uh, yours, I think, is more dramatic because you were <laughs> you were improvising and then figured out what improv is. So how did that happen? Well, I met a man called Mike Myers. You might have come I've across heard him. Of him. Yeah, And uh, so I was doing a show with the Cambridge Footlights, the C- Cambridge Footlights out of Cambridge University, people like Hugh Laurie, Stephen Fry, Olivia Coleman, Emma Thompson, Peter Cook and half of Monty mm-hmm. Python, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen. And some of those younger me, some, some are older, I won't say which. Uh, so he'd heard of Cambridge Footlights. He was living in the UK, in London. He'd arrived having been kind of pretty successful in Toronto with Second City Touring Company, done some yep. commercials, done much music with Chris Ward, who mm-hmm. people might have heard of, Alana Miles, he was her, her producer and so forth, or you might not have done. So mm-hmm. Mike arrived thinking, hey, I'm I'm okay, I've done stuff in Toronto and around Canada. And then, uh, because he had a British passport, he could live here, nobody had heard of Mike Myers, nobody had heard right. of Second City. Right. So he was left wandering the streets, literally. Um, and knocked on the door of this pub theatre, small uh, theatre above a pub, and it said Cambridge Footlights. So he he said to them, can I help? And they said, yeah, right, you paint the set. Hmm. okay, Um, And you can sell tickets. So uh, there he was. I met him. He was sitting in a wheelchair, not because he's a wheelchair user, but we'd use the regular chairs on set for a a show called Get Your Coat, Dear, We're Leaving, (laughs) uh, 
which we'd been hoping for a show to, you know, the title came before the show. It's just yeah. sketches, really. But we thought it'd be funny for us to be sitting on stage eating while the audience came in. Such a small theatre that um, they had to come past us. Of course, it set the tone of, we don't care what you think, audience, but there we go. So Mike was sitting there selling tickets and he made me laugh. He's mm. funny. He's funny. He knows funny. And he, I said, what are you doing? He, he said, I'm writing sketches. I said, this is 1985, by the way. I said, sketches. Nobody wants sketches. Everybody wants stand-up. Stand-up, that's what they want. Really? I said, oh, I'll, I'll take you to see some uh, of the burgeoning alternative comedy world. We did. Uh, he did that funny thing where he walks down the stairs, but actually on the level, so behind a car that he you've seen perhaps since he made me laugh i said let's do a sketch all about that um and so we did a double act called malarkey and mars with that sketch which was basically us doing jokes and then trying to make a story around that joke of you can only see the top half of somebody uh it's called dr wicked if people want to look for it it's on youtube from the edinburgh festival 1986 mm-hmm. so um there was a move afoot by some comedian, Kit Hollerbach, who'd worked with uh, Robin Williams uh, and others in San Francisco, had done improv. And so uh, let's do improv. Why don't we persuade the comedy store in mm. London to open on a Sunday night, not just Friday, Saturday, uh, and doing improv? And nobody knew what improv was, literally. Right. If you were kind of uh, a theatre type, you might have heard improvisation to uh, create characters and create stories. Yeah, yeah. Very serious, heavy improv. Um, and so uh, Kid asked Mike, do you want to come and join us? And I've never quite been sure. Did she say, bring that guy with you? He seems okay. Because uh, they'd seen me working with Mike doing sketches. We did these sketches, which were basically, Mike describes it as stuff you do to make girls laugh in kitchens at parties. So yeah. silly visual stuff. Um, and they, Mike said, okay, I'll bring him along. Whether Mike said, uh, you know, bring him or, or, or can I bring him? Or they said, bring him. I don't know. Cause not many people did improv. So, uh, literally kid and Mike taught us improv. And then I was in a show. Um, we had a tiny moment before that playing a small theater, another pub theater doing alternative comedy where we had this sketch. The Dr. Wicked sketch wasn't ready yet. So we did do a very short one, which was us going da 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 tequila da 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 tequila. I don't know if you'll have to pay copyright for that, but uh, <laughs> I won't. <laughs> <laughs> the joke became: we'd say other letters, words beginning with T, and then eventually we had these jackets. Again, I bought these kind of dinner jackets. One was blue, one was green. Tuxedos uh, in a charity shop, a costume in search of a sketch. So we wore them for this thing. And at some point we'd reveal uh, the word tequila written inside the jacket, sort mm-hmm. of uh, duct tape inside. The audience was bemused, but that was our, so our five minute open spot was two minutes of tequila. And then three minutes, Mike said, let's improvise. Okay. So I don't know what we asked the audience for, but I was literally, my head was reeling. I nearly fell over. I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. Mike mm-hmm. was being funny. Um, and then that was a few months uh, before we actually did it. We did it at the Edinburgh Festival with Kit Hollerbach and Paul Merton and Dave Cohen, who then became the Comedy Store Players in October 1985. So I, I'd never seen an improv show before I was in, in one. And um, there's a huge gap in my improv knowledge. I, 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 have, seen, uh, I have seen the Herald yes. once, once mm-hmm. at the Groundlings in L.A., 
but most of what I've seen is short form. Yes. Um, and uh, to my eternal shame, there are so many wonderful practitioners out there doing great stuff. But, uh, you know, I was in a show before I knew what I was doing. And, and that has kind of continued in some respects. Yeah. And so, so similarly, uh, you know, I, I was a dishwasher here at Second City when Mike was on stage in Chicago right before he got hired for Silent Live. And when I started to work, I wanted to be a playwright. So I was working in, in theater, just getting any sort of job. And I did not know that Second City created its shows through improvisation. And I really wasn't aware of theatrical slash comedic improvisation in, in, in the slightest. I, my thesis on uh, Jack Kerouac and the Beats, and part of that was on spontaneous, what, what Kerouac called spontaneous bop prosody, improv writing. I was a deadhead. I, felt, I saw like 89 Grateful Dead shows. I love when they improvised. I was a jazz fan. I understood that sort of improvisation. And I think as a, as a, I played soccer, football, and, and again, a very improvisational in terms of, you know, the, the game, especially if you're playing it right. <laughs> Most people in the States were not at that point. But, but we would, you know, I'd go to soccer camp and they'd show us, you know, uh, World Cup games. And so, you know, I was watching Franz Beckenbauer and Giorgio Canale and all Pelé and all those. And, um, and then, but you get exposed to it, right? And you're like, this is madness. This is magic. And then as you start to become more acquainted with what's going on, you're like, oh, no, it's not that at all. And what I always talk about is the fact that it's, it's very much a, a, a practice. Um, and in your book, you talk about the fact early on of like, this isn't about winging it. And I think, unfortunately, we don't really have a good name for the thing we're actually talking about. We do call it improvisation, but I think you and I are talking about something different. And I have to say things like, it's not ad-libbing, it's not spontaneity. Um, I, I sometimes will say, wise improvisation? But you get what I mean? There's like, like the term improvisation does not really sum up what you and I are talking about when we talk about this exactly. application. Exactly, and, and that's why I use the word improv. Yeah. I say improvisation is ad-libbing, uh, making s- stuff up yep. improv it, it is yes you're making it up and I, I, there was a funny thing is i was giving a, a, a giving a, a workshop at london business school once and i was 15 minutes into talking about improvisation improv as a practice etc and this guy whose english was not his first language said do you mean lying <laughs> yeah no i said and, I said well, and i could see his logic was improv is making it wrong up. making it up is lying yeah, and, and I see, you know, who was it? Uh, Francois Truffaut said, you know, we're we're lying at uh, twenty four things frames per second. Anyway, so I always say improv is a practice yeah. which has a lot in common with other improvised forms of art. Jazz being perhaps the easiest read across, but uh, art as well, where there is structure, there is a praxis, there is, and and I'm glad you've used so many long words already. Prosody being one, that hmm. it's a praxis. So yeah. it's it's. Um, Yes, we're making it up, but the apparent chaos is looking for emergent structure. We are trying to find structure within the chaos. We're not trying to make it messy and, and uh, unformed. We're constantly creating form where we can. And for me, the greatest form is story. Mm-hmm. Along the way are funny moments, even occasionally a joke. Um, but sometimes a joke spoils the story, but let's not be too purist. But so you're absolutely right. So I, so I say improv is a thing, which um, improvisation is a broader term, making it up as you go along. And, and I use the, f- the phrase winging it 
because in the old days, the theatre, the person who was winging was in the wings at the side yeah. of the stage and they'd failed to learn their lines. There were lines. There was only one version of the script and they'd failed to learn it. Uh, and they were in the wings. Well, what's my line? What's my line? And so they were in a non-creative state. They were trying to remember stuff of which there was only one version. Improv is we we open by saying we know nothing. We have only ourselves and you to create. There is no script. We are going to co-create that. And so very often people, when I say to business people, is anyone improvised? <laughs> For them, it's what you do when things go wrong. For me, improv is what you do to make things go right. <laughs> um, whatever ingredients you have. Um, and that to me is uh, the joy of improv both as an interpersonal skill. I've never met you. I have a conversation with you. I do know you. We've worked together before, but let's still try and find a creative conversation. And improv as a mindset, kind of the world is changing. Uh, things happen I didn't expect. How can I, how can I live in that world of uncertainty and ambiguity? I want to find this quote for you. So, so I'm interviewing next week uh, Zainab Tone, who's a MIT professor who has a good jobs strategy. And, and part of her thesis is, is that employers don't understand, they don't really understand how crappy they pay. And they also don't understand not just the cost of the pay, but also time, not giving their people enough time. And this is, it's fairly radical. I, I, I really admired it. And then, you know, we have a, a thriving business here at Second City where we teach, like you do, improvisation to, to business people. And this is the quote. I, I just pulled this out. There's like, 20 minutes ago and sent it to the people who do the selling for our corporate group. She writes in the book, um, uh, quote, it's impossible to specify every interaction in advance. The more management tries to add standards, policies, rules for unpredictable situations, the more often their specifications and scripts are going to be useless, counterproductive, or infuriating in practice, end quote. <laughs> Which well, uh, I have to defend the people she's attacking in a way. Go for because, it. Because um, we have to have some structure. Yeah. And, and I, I'm a big fan of ambiguity. In everything, mm -hmm. the opposite is true. <laughs> um, yin and yang. So many binary philosophical approaches. Uh, the shadow, Jung, which is every strength had its shadow. Courage, the shadow, i.e. the obverse, is recklessness. Mm. Uh, the strength of decisiveness means insensitivity. And that's where uh, Myers-Briggs and Jung come in as well, which is if you're you're too far down the spectrum this way, you've forgotten what it is to be nearer the middle. And so that's why I would say, uh, and that's kind of the thesis of my book. I called it in the moment, but I've had my cake and eat it by saying a moment could be six months. It could be a year. It could be a moment in history. It could be the moment when you realize who you are, that you shouldn't be doing that, or you should be doing more of this. Uh, so I like the words, you know, infuriating. So many structures are infuriating. But how do you have uh, my friends at Ashridge Business School, now part of HALT, would talk about minimal structure, maximum autonomy. So just yeah, enough, mm -hmm. just enough structure. And you and I know that improv actually is structure. Lots of structure. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the, the yes and is structure. Yes, what you said is a value. I want to build on that. Yeah, uh, that's a structure. It's a microstructure. It's 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 possibly uh, harder to look at and understand than uh, a timetable and a calendar and an org chart. But 
uh, I always say to people, look, I perform at the comedy store every Sunday doing improv. I know we're going to start at 7.30. I know we're going to finish at 9.30. I know the comedy store has taken care of security, insurance, food, drink. There's plenty of structure within that so that we can improvise. That's right. So that when the audience is there, we are truly in the moment. But we know there's five other people. They've been booked in advance. We know the games we're going to play. We have a little running order. So there's kind of enough structure. We don't just turn up naked any time of the day or week. Whoever's there, just do it, man, which is a happening. <laughs> and not to say that it doesn't have a, it, its own joy. Uh, and uh, the, the question I ask people is, do you know what sort of situation you're in? Yeah. Are you in a structured moment that requires prep organization? Or are you in a free form moment where you do need to listen and be able to notice what's happening and co-create out of the seeming chaos? And that's where... Um, I borrow a quote from Woodrow Wilson. I didn't know he was the only president of the United States with a PhD in political science, but he says people mm. make the mistake of thinking that government is accountable to Newton rather than to Darwin. Now, mm. I did um, high school uh, maths and physics. Not everyone knows what I'm talking about. The other day I said, anyone know who Isaac Newton is? And somebody said, is he EMC e equals MC squared? Oh, no. People say, oh, the guy with the apple. Uh, and I said, well, gravity is an example of a force, but he has three laws of motion that things go at the same speed unless a force acts on them, etc. But basically, that gives rise to machines. Press this lever here and out of the machine over there comes a sausage or whatever. And occasionally you will get moments like that in organizations Woodrow Wilson said government. I say any organization mm-hmm. is accountable to Darwin adapting evolving not always adapting well actually some maladaptation takes place uh so there are moments when you want to be prepared and structured so that's where uh your 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 guest next week will have to sort of say well yeah okay i do get up at certain times i do have an office and i do have bookshelves where things are where they should be uh but don't turn up for a presentation and say well i haven't thought of anything whatever but don't Equally, turn up for a coaching moment or a team or a, um, uh, uh, with a client where you say, let me stick to my script, say what I've got to say, and then I'll go away. <laughs> um, there are moments which require one form or the other. And you and I know, Kelly, that um, those moments could live side by side. Um, oh, yeah. You need Second City does improv, uh, but it has a sketch. Yeah, it, it becomes a sketch. And, you know, you have to follow the fire regulations. Uh, show yeah. start on time. And this is another one. I always say theater is just about the only activity I know where we're on time and on budget. Hmm. Uh, we, we don't say, oh, for, um, unless it's a huge deal, I guess. Uh, but we normally say the first whatever happens, the first night has tickets are sold. We've got to be there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're going to start on time. We we have to, and we got a budget. It's probably pretty small in theater. We got yeah. to stick to it. M- most building projects, IT projects, business things go way over time, way over budget. It's interesting because the I'm often talking when I talk to business groups about some of the, um, you know, in, in our work, we talk about, you know, making your partner look good, but also in the theater, we have a stage manager who comes by and says 10 minutes and you say back to that stage manager, thank you, 10. 
And it's literally, <laughs> and, and when I had kids, like during bath time, when they didn't want to get out, I'd be like, we got 10 minutes and they would have to say, thank you, 10. And it was a very useful tool to sort of signal to this child. <laughs> and I'm talking about my child, not the actor. Uh, yes. But you can draw your own conclusions um, <laughs> that, that in 10 minutes, we're getting out in five minutes, we're getting out. OK, we're getting out. And that paved that was just important. And, and again, that speaks to what you're talking about, which is incredible constraints that are levied to unleash creativity. So we know how big this stage is. The stage is a very particular size and it's the same size every every night. And we know we're going to start and finish at a certain time. And we know this, you know, at Second City, two acts of this, this show are primarily scripted. There might be some improv. That third act is yours. But there's a reason it's late at night. It's a reason the cast often changes into uh, less formal wear clothing because we are doing all this context setting for what is going to become next because as you and I know, improvisation is incredibly tender. That that unlike just showing up and doing a Shakespearean play or sonnet, which mostly people will understand what's going on, they would not. Most regular audiences would still, even as popular as improv has become, they would still not understand the thing they're seeing. I mean, my dad was a theater critic for years here in Chicago, and I produced a long-form improvisational show, huge, massive hit. He didn't understand it. He was like, <laughs> I, I, I saw that people liked it. Congratulations. I don't understand what's happening. <laughs> How lovely. And we're all looking for our father's approval. How lovely yeah. that he failed singularly to approve that. Uh, yeah, but, but it's interesting that um, you talk about fragile. People say to me, what about if you're heckled? And I said, that's fine. As long as they say it clearly and loudly, we can all hear it. And it may be funny. That's fine. As you say, one of our ethos, uh, elements of our ethos is make the other person look good. Um, there comes a time when you need to say shut up. But as long as somebody says loud and clear, that's an offer. And this, of course, is our... A currency and the imp- everything is an offer yep. is a title of a book by a friend of mine called Rob Robert Poynton. Everything is an offer, mm-hmm. uh, an offer, something happened, something said uh, something. Oh, how can I use that? But of course the worst heckle isn't a heckle at all. It's those pre Christmas office party shows yeah. where n- n- somebody, it's not the question of somebody shouting out, you know, what about the chicken, which is great. Cause Oh, I'll be a chicken. I can use that. If it's just the hubbub, the group of people, 10 or more, who are just saying, oh, who wants to drink? You want wine, lager, beer? Okay. And that is when you realize how actually fragile what we're doing, because any slight distraction like that means we can't be in the moment. We're thinking, what are they saying? What should I, should I stop and say, be quiet, please? Mm-hmm. I've, 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 it's kind of a Zen thing. It's kind of a state yeah. of relaxed concentration. And people will be surprised when I don't remember what we did that night Um, because I was, I call it, I'm in flash, not in hard drive. Um, And so if you can get to that state of flow, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it, if whatever our job is, we could do that with somebody. And of course I love ensemble improv. People think it's a stand-up ad-libbing. And I always say, no, it's a type of theater where, the fourth wall is there. We're creating scenes. We're looking for stories, but it is quite fragile. It's, as you say, the audience doesn't really know what they're seeing. Uh, we will occasionally 
step out and say that was a block (laughs) you know when somebody does something that we would consider oh that's denied my reality but then of course the game becomes can i deny her reality and it's it's like playing um, basketball blindfold or something You're, you're deliberately um uh sort of playing a different type of game but underneath it it's still yes and it's still uh i'm holding you safely here even if it looks like i'm uh teasing you i know that if I tease you a little bit, the audience will think, oh, and then I know you can ascend uh, uh, to the heights. I'm still trying to make you look good. And that to me is, a, a, I hadn't realized what a radical idea that was. Mm. So a guy who, who read my book, who used to be a columnist for the Financial Times, said, this is a radical idea. And I said this yesterday to a, a, an international finance Zoom event I was doing. I said, um, make the other person look good. That's not radical, is it? And Somebody said, "Yeah, it is." <laughs> mm. um, and i I thought that's I thought that's what leadership was, right? I thought uh, being a leader is about making the team look good. But um, maybe I'm too naive. Well, it's just I think we I think for many of us because we're I think we're close in age. I think we got seduced by the sort of Jack Welch GE era where it was like, and and, and of course all of that fell apart. All of that, and everyone who worked for Welch who went to these other companies, just reading about this at Home Depot, one of the Nardelli who went to Home Depot, just, yeah, profits, they, they, they sort of went up right away because you cut the labor force. And then, of course, seven years later, you've got nothing but problems because, of course, it was not human centered in any way. And still are, and, and this is an important part that you bring up early in the book. Uh, and you say two specters are hanging over us remote and robots. Uh, but also what you talk about is that this is not so much about the future of work, um, but I think you talk about uh, to have a future at work. So let's talk about that a little bit of, of where we sit right now um, with with the, the with work as it is and work as it's going to become um, and, and why improvisation then becomes really what I think you and I both think is an essential skill. Yeah. I, I guess in my head, I was thinking of my daughter, who's 18, and I was thinking of the many middle managers I meet who are looking for promotion and they don't get it because something called people skills mm. <laughs> um, and uh, also looking to what are the jobs going to be. So the book is addressed to the individual. And somebody else said to me the other day, it's really encouraging. And I said, I'm glad you use that word because I, I want everyone to think whatever their state of, of life is, I can learn something from this. And whatever it is, I think I couldn't do, maybe I could give it a shot. Um, and uh, it's even okay to make mistakes, but try stuff out, your leadership style. Try talking to somebody you didn't talk to. Um, try being looser in certain events or by or in a, an agenda. Be harder. Have a side meeting. Try stuff out. Um, to me, it's fascinating because remote is not going away. I mean, it's wonderful that I can speak to you on zoom yeah isn't it great and we're not using carbon well not too much carbon not as much carbon if, as if i fly on the other hand robots and i'm fascinated by this with, with chat gpt which has sort of happened since i finished the book uh which in some respects is it going to take knowledge workers uh jobs i don't know um we all thought that that uh artificial intelligence would sort of take a certain echelon i don't know which jobs it's going to take but i feel it's going to add a whole bunch of new jobs mm. um, if we manage it well. And of course, there is a dark specter of what AI is doing when people f- who know 
are resigning and saying, this is, you know, I I wish we hadn't done what we did to lead where we are. Um, Remote to me is, is uh, the future Mm. Uh, hybrid in some respects. And Paul, Paul Zach the other day uh, was saying, we need to get together. We need to be in the office uh, because of that, something that happens when we're social. But I'm saying, yes, when you are in the office, don't just say we're in the office, make that, really as human as possible intentional mm-hmm. we're here and so let's use it let's collaborate let's be together let's have lunch even if that's all we do um but how can we bring that social element to zoom to teams and so forth and to me improv is the absolute answer uh listen listen to what somebody said bring people in let disparate voices be heard be playful um you know when i run a zoom session people can't quite believe how I do it because I treat it like an improv show. Right. So I stand up uh, and I look inside people's lives and uh, what's behind you. What's going on there? Is it a guitar? Is it a this? And I use what's in their life as an offer. And of course uh, it becomes part of the game. And uh, again, March 16th, 2020, my f- world fell apart. I don't know if you remember, it was when, uh, we hadn't yeah. quite closed down the UK, but the, the prime minister said, nobody go out to restaurants or cafes without kind of making it a legal requirement. So my keynotes, my coaching, my workshops, the comedy store shut. And so I thought, what am I going to do? And so somebody said, try Zoom. Uh, yeah. And break breakouts. So we can do like we did in workshops where people, people go play on their own without being looked at by everybody, which is, which is what I like in workshops, two or three people play. Then they report back saying, well, she listened to me. And actually when she said that, when he did this and it was the the joy of improv of the joy of not knowing, but also saying, well, I wanted it to go this way. And I'm saying, really? In just a silly little game like this, you had an agenda. What's it like at work for you? So anyway, to me, uh, the improv skills and drills. Yes. And, uh, accept, build, follow the follower. All of our precepts are totally uh, adaptable and necessary to make Zoom humane. Um, no less kind of have a proper agenda. So it doesn't just, you know, the the worst Zoom calls I had, by the way, were with the other comedy store players because there was nobody running it. We were just... Oh, no. of, Exactly. There was nobody yeah. running it. We we are an anarcho-syndicalist collective who mm-hmm. for 38 years have had no structure, no bank account. And that's why it's worked, because there has been no leadership in, in some respects. But we only play together a couple of hours a week. Uh, but our Zoom meetings were a mess because there was no agenda. There was nobody leading it. Um, and so I say, you know, do you have an agenda? Like you have a running order with a with an improv show or you have a structure with which with a narrative long form. Um but within that, then we have the joy of of the spontaneity, but the practice that improv has, which is I'm consciously, intentionally listening to what you're saying and using your contribution to move forward. Uh, another thing I want to talk to you about is I often have to describe the difference between improvisation and comedy or humor. Um, in, in part because they get conflated just like creativity and innovation do. And they're two different, different things. And yes, a lot of comedy and humor comes out of improvisation, mostly because of some sort of revealed truth. Um, but, but there's this other part and there's more and more science on this right now in terms of the overall benefits to humor in the workplace. Um, 
Which is tricky. Uh, there's another line that I've used often, which is it's, you got to be very careful if you're going to use comedy without a license. Um, because there's sort of light humor and whimsy and all those things, which I think are very safe. But going that sort of, sort of extra step, what professional comedians do is often sort of rough territory. How do you toe that line? Because I know it comes up in, in your workshops because people, when they do our work, they laugh. Yeah. Well, um, I often get that, especially when dealing with non-UK audiences. They say, don't do jokes about the prime minister. Or that. I say, you don't understand. I'm not doing jokes. No. At no point do I do, did you hear the one about? <laughs> I don't know any jokes. <laughs> yeah, Very I only know. My, I only know two jokes. One is absolutely filthy. And the other one is uh, what's red and sits in the corner, a naughty strawberry. Okay. All right. <laughs> there you go. We know, and, and, but yeah, I know. I know. Uh, Where's the king keep his armies up his sleeveys? Sleeveys, so exactly. We know children's pun jokes. Yes, exactly. Otherwise, I don't remember them. I don't particularly like jokes. I mean, we could right. talk about it for another fifty-eight hours, but yes, philosophically, a joke is closed-ended to me, mm-hmm. and a joke may often have a, a victim. Whereas for me, improv. Uh, is acknowledging our shared humanity. It's right. fragile. It's saying, I don't know what I'm going to say. Uh, oh, you said something. I'll steal that and build on it. That to me is it. I mean, you did a TED talk, by the way, just to quote back to you, when you said your son, I think he's called Nick, Nick uh, yeah. where he said, isn't it fun, dad? I did this improv class where it's, it's go- okay to be nice and funny. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, because yeah. improv is about making the other person look good. Yes, there are moments when you tip over into uh, something which I might call disaffiliative humour. Mm-hmm. I found this, and I use this, affiliative humour is we are in it together. Mm-hmm. Uh, moments of sadness can be lightened by uh, gallows humour or perspective taking. Disaffiliative is you're outside my group. Look at you. And that's not humour to me. That's bullying. And the laughter is hollow. Um but I know, and you know, that in workshops, when people are laughing, they're going to learn. Yeah. And I do have a whole section, a chapter on humor. And I try and point out that humor, the best humor is the one we all share. When the leader says, I don't know what to do, or look at what a mess I made of it, uh, you know, when I was young, and I came through. So ultimately, I describe to people that the, yeah, we're being funny. Yeah, we play at the comedy store. But the thing we're aiming towards is story. Mm-hmm. both the story of this scene, but also the story of six people having fun together. And even the story of that person who made that suggestion early on and keeps making the other day we asked for location. Somebody said Belgium and every sort of 10 minutes, he say Belgium. <laughs> and right at the end, we took the curtain call and he shouted Belgium again. And that is an example of what you and I would call a callback. I call it reincorporation because that's the mm-hmm. word Mike Myers taught me reincorporate. I used to say recycle, which is bring back a thing from before. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you, um, recognition. I understand your wife has got a, a three tier thing, pain, distance and recognition. Yeah. And, um, and for me, the, uh, w- which a lot of people I notice, the, the, they notice I use on the stage is mm-hmm. the reincorporation. That character, that bit, that word comes back in a new environment and it's just pleasing. We don't know why. I think it's to do with narrative, which is, oh, that's some story, the story, the weaving threads uh, of, of what happened before. And, oh, we see him again. We see her again in this new environment. So for me, the easiest humor is reincorporating what somebody said to me earlier. Or they say they came from 
Putney in London. And then 10 minutes later, I say, what's it like in Putney? I haven't said anything funny. I hope I haven't said you're rubbish because you're from Putney. But I just gently said what you said matters to me. And it's my favorite form, really, is just bringing back stuff. It's just thro- throwing it in again, the callback, the tiny moment that says, hey, I remember what you said and that what matters to you. And I, and I have to be honest with you, I, I use humor in the workshops to tease out the truth, I hope. And, yeah. and when somebody, we do a one word at a time game and somebody says two words or three words, I say, that's perfect. You're such a good leader. You deserve to say three times more than anybody else. <laughs> and and you know, I'm playing with it. Yeah. And then we 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 I say, well, control. We're playing a game where you can't be in control. Yeah. Uh, other than of your one word. And, and and how do you find that? Is that frustrating? And I play games where we do a one word at a time and I say, somebody step out. You're not in the gang anymore, but you can direct. And how do you like that? And sometimes people say it's great because somebody with an outside ear, like in music, the conductor or the leader of the jazz group was able to listen to the whole. Some people say, I didn't want to be outside. I want to be in the gang playing. It was more fun to be on the on the dance floor rather than being uh, on the balcony to use. Um, uh, right. Yeah. Metaphor. Yeah. There's a scientist by the name of Nick Chatter who I've had on the podcast twice. The, the second one hasn't aired yet. His, his first book was talking about improvisation and, and consciousness and sort of, uh, you know, his theory was that there isn't, there isn't uh, some sort of like deep dark well that we're going to. There are all of our experiences, all of our de- ideas, and we, we just draw on them at different times, you know, and w- whether we have access, we might have access, we might not, we might forget that they're there, those sort of things. His latest book, which he co-wrote with Morton Christensen is called the language game. And his theory is that language is improvised. That rather than if you look at Chomsky, Pinker, some of the other thinkers, they all have this sort of like thinking that language was some sort of like granite, big marble granite thing inside all of us that we just sort of chip away with and get to. And like, no, it isn't. There wouldn't be 800 different languages if that was the case. What there are are kids playing games with words, objects, ideas, their bodies, their mouths, their eyes, all those things. And they just practice it and practice it. And people who are maybe less good at language don't get as much practice. And it's kind of a radical idea. And one, one that I, I think is, is, again, speaks to what you and I are talking about, both in terms of improvisation, but also this recognition piece. Because what they point out in, in this la- the book on language is that also our conversations are often like charades. If you were to, I will look at the manuscript later for our conversation because I have to do like what we call rule of three for our website where I I pull out stuff. I never use the actual words in their entirety because they won't make sense. But anyone listening to our conversation will not think that. They will will think, no, this makes perfect sense. What do you mean? (laughs) Yes, I love that. A friend of mine is a professor of linguistics and he listens out for disfluences mm-hmm. and how many there are where I start a sentence and I start a sentence having rejigged what I was going to say. And we don't mind. In fact, we are hearing that and thinking the same ourselves. Oh, right, we'll go with that. Um, and so you couldn't write that down. Mm-hmm. And in a, in a way to perhaps extend your thought, I always say to people improv and I call it improv, so as to, to define this form of theatre, which is different from scripted theatre. I say 
if you asked us to write that down and recreate it, it will be mad. I mean, it's hard enough. And I find this with audience members when they say, I tried to explain the Monday morning what I saw the night before. And I say, yeah, it's the original. You had to be there. Mm-hmm. It only works if mm-hmm. you've sat through the two hours of the reincorporation, the callback, that that person teasing that person, somebody saying Belgium, uh, the chicken is the bank robber, whatever. You, mm-hmm. And it's just it's rubbish. Yeah. But yeah. it's it's a stream of consciousness which we are sharing. And again, the audience in an improv show is on the edge of their seat because mm-hmm. we're going to fall over any time. We jug, we drop the balls, but but they know it's for them. It's unique and. They're invested. When they watch stand-up or script, they're sitting, well, I know they've done it before. They'll do it another time. Do I like it? Well, maybe. Maybe there'll be another stand-up in a minute. I like her more than this one. And it's a very different experience. And I used to say it's kind of eating a burger versus steak. And I'm not sure if, even if we are eating less meat now, whether it's the right metaphor. But it's a different kind of meal, for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's tiring. People say to me, I'm exhausted. My my tummy's aching. My cheeks are aching. And I'm saying, yeah. You, it's uh, if Freud says that um, pleasure is the relief of pain. There's quite a lot of pain watching improv because you can see us teetering on the verge of failure, which makes it so um, immersive. If yeah. I may say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you're right. If 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 you've got to read this nonsense that we're saying, <laughs> but um, uh, if if you're even listening to it later, people say, I, I, I get where they were. There was a sort of growing thing and they meandered and stuff like that. You couldn't make an article of this, but I, um, I, but, actually... but I think that, the, but I think what people, why podcasts are so popular right now and, and radio previously, because it's just another version of radio is because people are responding to what they recognize, which is how we all communicate. Yeah. And it's why, it's why David Mamet, uh, who was a busboy at Second City in the 60s, you know, for a long while was such a celebrated playwright because it was the first time we were hearing language that was what he called naturalistic dialogue, which he picked up by watching people improvise because for the most part, especially uh, American improvisation, we're in, in Chicago, we're not playing a lot of characters or the characters are very close to ourselves. So it is how, how regular human beings speak. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, as I say to people, any organization, you you think there's a, a logo, you think there's a building, but actually it's just a bunch of people having converse, improvised conversations yeah, that's right. with their suppliers, with their cu- customers. And uh, how can you define that? We do want to object make it objective and you know we have a brand and stuff like that but ultimately um it's it's uh and i i found this quote <laughs> which i've ne- i saw um um henry mintzberg speak once and i can't find where he said it anywhere else he he said management is conversations interrupted <laughs> and mm. that to me and it's brilliant isn't it? because because you know that's what families are that's what friends are it's kind of just sure. a bunch of conversations um and and we never quite get the uh, to the answer and, and many improv scenes kind of we say and scene because we yes. got a big laugh <laughs> even better occasionally we win the treasure the dragon is defeated the prince mm-hmm, and princess mm-hmm. are together uh that doesn't always happen so we say scene um and uh sometimes we say scene just a bit too late <laughs> or we say just as the thing was about to get to it so that um endings i would say often is an offer in improv but um when you try and explain to people that we're improvising all the time wouldn't you like to get better at it from people who do it professionally 
uh, that has a bit of traction. Uh-huh. Uh, other people say, I'm so terrified of having to do a workshop with you because I don't know what to say. And I said, well, uh, what do you do on a Tuesday morning? Uh, right. You say st- you say stuff that you kind of thought before, but you maybe you're saying in different ways. Mm-hmm. And actually, when you say to people, like, the first game I often do is just they sit there quietly while I t- guide them on a guided visualization. They walk along a road in their head. And I say, you've improvised. You've taken an offer from me of it's by the seaside. It's it's in the city. It's last year. It could be when you're a child and you've enacted it without moving an improvised scene. So it's a mixture of pre-thought, you know, ideas, images and what's occurred to you in the moment. And they often say, I don't know why it came into my head. And I say at the end of the the the, the game, there's a gift waiting for you. And people will say, gosh, I didn't know where that came from. And I say, that's that's the place that's interesting to me mm-hmm. that I didn't know where it came from. Mm-hmm. And um allow yourself to be there sometimes um know that you're more comfortable sometimes being i know where stuff is going to come from i've got a plan i've got a to-do list um but your brain wants a bit of both and needs to know where it is yeah 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 okay in a moment i'm going to ask you for a yes hand story but what i you talk about storytelling in the book uh so i want to sort of tell you my journey with storytelling so when i wrote the book, Yes, And, uh, I was really brought in as a writer because I, I, I write and I produced at Second City for decades at that point. Um, I was not, I didn't do the corporate stuff. I, you know, occasionally got brought in to ideate on, on, on things, whatever. So it was a kind of a journey of discovery in terms of like, oh, how do we apply this here? How do we apply that here? What, what are some client stories my partner Tom would bring in? And I would sort of craft them up and then talk about the work as, as I knew it. And then, of course, the book comes out and people want you to go speak about the book. So I start doing more and more of these keynotes. And sometimes I'm not a teacher. I could lead, I can lead people through a few exercises, but I'm married to the teacher. I'm not a teacher. <laughs> um, and what I saw on our website is that we get brought in for storytelling a lot. And at that point, and this is a, a few years back, we really weren't teaching improvisation so much as related to storytelling. We had really smart improv people um, looking at Joseph Campbell and some other theories around, around that. And it started to frustrate me personally that like, wait, we, I, I think there's a, a, a more of a symbiotic relationship here between storytelling and, and the improv work. It doesn't need to be, you know, alien, alien from that, but I couldn't, I couldn't grasp it in part because the clients didn't know what they wanted. They would say, this is the thing I know, I know, you know, which is like, we want something storytelling. And I'm like, what do you? Uh, okay. So we start going down the list. Do you mean sales? Do you mean <laughs> pitching? Do you mean leadership? Do you, it, and, and, and so what, what it would become would be first, it was getting an idea of what they were actually looking for. And then for me, and this is ever evolved, I'm still evolving, but I'm, but I'm almost there is uh, then what aspects of the storytelling process as it relates to improv um, are important. And I know what it is in leadership, right? And then, because I think it's pretty apparent, uh, apparent, especially in in our need for our leaders to be good communicators, show uh, empathy and vulnerability, uh, and and that that magic word everyone talks about, authenticity, um, which is um, way more... It's not ethereal. 
And, and I think one of the mistakes most people writing about authenticity have is they don't know how to approach it by anything else. And for you and I, it's like, no, 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 no. This is where the good stuff is. And often what it is, is those flaws, those mistakes, those re- resilient journeys that you have had to take that are the thing that the, uh, your audience, your workers are craving for. They, they want to know your fiascos. All right. So that, that's my journey of storytelling. Can you talk about uh, how it shows up in your book? Well, exactly the same. They okay. say, we want storytelling. And I say, what do you want? Do you mean better presentations, uh, clearer slides, <laughs> um, how to marshal an argument, and which is all fine. Sure. Or do you want something, a story, this um, basic software that's been around since the dawn of humankind? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and Joseph Campbell, who uh, I was introduced to you by Mike Myers, I, he said, oh, there's a shape shifter, there's the 12 moments, there's the climax, the resurrection. And one time at London Business School, I went through all the, you know, the 12 steps and they just looked at me like I was mad. I got terrible reviews. <laughs> and so I thought <laughs> I better not do 12. So I do three now. Three. Yeah. Beginning, middle and end, uh, where we started, what we did, where we ended up um, and uh, variations thereon. Um so uh, storytelling is a bit of a thing now, a bit like purpose. We, we don't yeah, quite yeah, know yeah. what it means, but it sounds like we ought to have some of it, or maybe more of it, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes I have to, as exactly as you, what do you really mean? Do you mean just better presenting, which is fine? Do you mean something more um, ethereal, which is understanding where we fit in the business, uh, understanding where we're heading, uh, making sense of of what's happened uh i saw tom peters speak once and he said leaders don't make decisions they make sense <laughs> basically mm-hmm. that's making and, sure mm-hmm. and another thing was you know uh, i read somewhere it doesn't matter what decisions you make as long as you make some and as long as 10 percent are right it was kind of that and to me it was um i'm often called in and it's basically the company we we don't we want to be able to tell the client what we're good at okay so um find out what else is happening and uh begin to understand in in a few lines how you can tell that story or and this is what i find particularly with management consultants tell me about a recent project uh right and they don't know how to explain it they don't know how to explain to a normal person um and i say and this one of my favorite games now is to explain it now in real business jargon, the most complex re- uh, uh, alignment, sustainability, KPI, ROI, leverage. Give me as many management buzzwords as you can. And then tell the same story, but just as you would to your eight year old niece, nephew, your neighbor, you met at a barbecue. And of course, you know, we took this thing that was losing money. Now it's making money. Uh, just things like that. And mm-hmm. there's lots of literature out there. And I mentioned one in my book about how to to uh, make a story of what just seemed like an assignment. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and um, and uh, there's um, Pixar had the story spine by Ken Adams that came from improv. So uh, story can go very ethereal and, and, and highfalutin with the shapeshifter and the mentor and the inciting incident and stuff like that. All of which is helpful, I think, to writers when they rewrite their sort of unclear narrative movie theater. On the other hand, I have lately started to say to leaders, your job is a storyteller. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to tell us how we got here. 
uh, you've got to tell us where we are and then you've got to tell us where we're going next. Yeah. And that's where the improv comes in, which is um, listening to your clients say, and they say, we want, uh, we want this to happen. And then you listen and, and you kind of tell them the story of where they're heading. Uh, you tell them what the treasure is or the dragon that's being defeated. And if, and this is where professional services can really make a difference where they say, uh, let me tell this story of why you're here, um, how you got here. And the client go, ah, oh, thanks. You understand us because you told us our story. And I got this a bit from um, Marshall Gantz, mm-hmm. uh, who, who talks about public story, uh, which is basically the story of me, the story of us and the story of next, roughly, you know, which is what are my values? What am I authentic to? Uh, how do we get here? Where are we going next? And tell that as a story. now, And that doesn't have to be... Uh, are, you know, long arcane moments of uh, the protagonist and the antagonist. It needs to be, this is where we are. We're losing 50 million. Uh, and then I say, just tell me what the end. Now we've saved 50 million. <laughs> okay. Now just do a quick thing about act two. Uh, well, we did a thing and now it's tied it up. So uh, story is indeed very profound, but it can be uh, overly mystified. Yeah. Um, and also people don't know what they mean by it. And uh, if I can just say to me, explain it as you would to somebody who doesn't understand the world you're in. Yeah. Uh, think. And, and the first step to what this metaphor, what's the analogy? You're a doctor for business. You're looking under the uh, looking at the engine. But actually, what we care about is where the car's going to go. Uh, we don't know what the map is, but we know we're going to go there together or something where. And of course, uh, some people find that a bit hard, uh, which is, well, I, I can only talk in terms of the thing I do. <laughs> um, so that's, that's where storytelling has for me has come about is better explaining what we did, who we are. And then I challenge people to say, uh, you've got, you may have a few stories about your company. Can you rewrite the same story where your client becomes the protagonist? Because you were the Obi-Wan Kenobi, they're Luke Skywalker. Um, and then eventually make the hero, the protagonist, the heroine, uh, the customer, the person who doesn't know what's going on with the bonnet, but just knows their life is easier now. And then you tell the, the same story about the project, but from the end user. And even sometimes, and in this country, there was uh, the hero was the COVID app, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and we didn't know how it worked. We knew a bunch of people worked on it, but it, it, it was the hero of the story. And I say, wouldn't that be great to make the project, the device, the software, the product, the hero, the heroine who who saw us out of uh, uh, the darkness into the light. Um, and that's about as far as I let myself go with uh, sort of story philosophy. It's interesting. As you were talking, this thing was flashing on me, on me that I don't think I've articulated for, for myself yet. So this will be the first time. But I think because we... Again, I look at our website in terms of what we offer, and, and there's always it's like these are just words, and I, you know when I talk about them, they, they might make sense. But just looking at them, and one of the th- one of the most things, one of the, probably the biggest thing we sell is a thing called communication skills. And I think the difference here is that communication training, outside of what we do, is scripted almost entirely, and yet communication is 99% unscripted. And so the idea, the radical idea here is, is the idea 
of playful communication being thoroughly unique to anyone who is entering this if they haven't done improv before. Yeah, well, um, this is... uh, People often think, I teach improv on stage, therefore I'm teaching presentation skills. And when I started, I didn't want to be a presentation coach, but I've become that sometimes. Um, And I want people to be clear when you've got a presentation that's supposed to last five minutes, make sure it lasts four minutes, 50. Make sure you're rehearsed. Make sure you know which where your slides are. I even things like if it's uh, in front of a big audience, make sure we're going to put the the pack, the, the microphone pack, the battery stuff. It's heavy. If you're a woman, you don't have anywhere to put it. Might have to end up down your bra. So wear a jacket or ask for a pouch yeah. or something like that. Just boring stuff like that. So I, I think when it's a presentation or something scripted, Really work hard, rehearse it, use all of the software infrastructure we would for a play. Um, try stuff out, rewrite, have somebody in with the room with you to kind of say, slow down, speed up. All oh, that makes sense. Um, but you're right. And I, I'm not even sure 99%, who knows how much is improvised. A lot of it is, but certainly the medium of understanding between colleagues is mostly improvised conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, selling can be scripted and uh, uh, to a degree, to a degree. But then, you know, there's the follow up conversation, whatever that is. But, you know, I've read the PDF. I've seen the website. I I like the advert or whatever. That's the script. Then I need to know a little bit about, well, will it fit my life? Yeah. Um, But you're right. And 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 as uh, I often sort of think they're asking me in to help with improv. And do they really know where it's leading? Because it may lead to to changes in how they perceive the infrastructure, which, which um, your person, what's she called? Zen tone. Uh, Zainab tone. Zainab tone. Okay. Yeah, so well, I, have to, I have to write that down, but, but, you, and, and again, this continual dynamic between structure, which enhances and structure, which is destructive. Um, and the same structure may be helpful to begin with. And then um, a year later, isn't. Um, okay. So, uh, communication skills to me, yes, presentation. And I try and say sometimes, you know, formal and informal, how I present myself, my personal impact. And uh, that, of course, is how I'm in when I'm my improvised self, if you like. Hmm. All right. We always end the podcast and usually I have to explain the concept of yes and and I, I don't. Um, <laughs> you have a yes and story for us. I do. Uh, Ten years into the Comedy Store Players we had our celebration. There was some PR and yada, yada. And I was getting tired and I, I was feeling bad. Hmm. I spent Sunday and Wednesday evenings improvising two hours, well, no, a half an hour, an hour to get there and back, whatever. I've wasted my time. I'm thinking, look hmm. at all these clever people who spent the equivalent time writing, writing scripts and getting on well. And their work now lives beyond them. It's a book, it's a TV show, it's a movie. And I thought, I've made a mess. I should have spent that time doing something that lived beyond me, beyond the moment of the stage, of the comedy store. It was lost. That improv moment disappeared into the ether. I took three months off and I said to the other comedy store players, I'm having three months off. In fact, I said, I'm going to leave. But Paul Merton, who's quite a famous guy here, said, no, don't leave, just take three months off. Um, and 
And I said, and I'd also done a lot of the admin, making sure we had enough players that night, et cetera. So I said, I'm not going to do that. You, three months, you've got to fend for yourselves. Within a month and a half, I was saying, are there any slots available, please? Uh, and the yes, the yes was, yes, I have done improv. The but was, but I should have been doing script. The and was, I've done it. So what am I telling myself? And actually the and was, and you should be doing more improv. And mm. that's what led me to teaching it. So 95 uh, was when I had that moment. By 98, I, I was actively teaching improv to the to actors at the actor center and other places and by 98 i was thinking this is where i can really add some value to people outside performers these skills on stage work beautifully couldn't they help off stage and that was my end it was not you haven't done you should have been writing instead you wasted time improv you haven't done enough improv you should be doing more that's the thing look at the offer in your own life of you spent all this time doing improv What's the and? The and is take that beyond the stage. I love it. The book is called In the Moment, Build Your Confidence, Communication, and Creativity at Work. Neil Malarkey, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. Getting the Yes And is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor is Iridian Fierro from WGN. We get support at the Second City from Colleen Fahey, Mike Farinaccio, and Emma Smith. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about the Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com.
survive.